0: Before we really, well, before we really get started, though, I want to say that next week, next Tuesday, we will not have service. I know an email went out, just in case you missed that we will not be having next Tuesday's service. Why? Because we're moving into there. They're supposed to be pouring the concrete this week. So we're moving into there. So I want to make sure we have plenty of time to move all of that. Into the other room, and not have any surprises for Easter. So we're going to be in here one more Sunday, and then after that, we're going to—I'm going to move stuff. Start me and Rob, and i are going to start moving stuff over, and uh, and rewiring for the other room, and uh, we'll get it set up so that uh, we're not missing anything as we go forward from there. So next Tuesday, we won't have it. Because I don't want to be rushing. I don't want to rush something and mess it up. I want to be um, settled for, Tuesday, for, for Easter Sunday. Um, so that, that being said, so we won't have it next Tuesday. But today we are talking about the medieval learning and um, and, and worship. Um, Particularly as we talk about the, the medieval church. I'm getting a weird echo off of this thing. Just had my water bottle on it. Let's turn it that way. Still a little weird. Aiden, take this thing away. Thank you, son. All right. Um... The scholastic movement between the 1950s and the 1400s, I guess, 1350s, 1400s um, develop alongside with the, um, some of the heretical movements, some of the, uh, the rational thought of the outside world We're going to, with the development of educational systems, we're going to begin the process of leaving the medieval period over 300 years and beginning to what we'll call the modern church period. But education is an important part of that. And a lot of it starts with the rise of the university. Um, Now... Well, we'll get to the schools of, of, of scholasticism here in a minute. The universities are, are much like they are today. Actually, in fact, a lot of our traditions at university, I know some of you did go to university, some of you did not, uh, still come from this medieval period. And uh, But um, the universities became teaching centers and research development centers by about 1200 AD AD 1200 by 1400 there were over 75 European uh, universities which seems like a little to us because if you go across the United States there are hundreds of universities Um, the reason there's hundreds of universities is because they're all government sponsored say, no, they're not. Yes, they are. Every time you take out a college loan, that's government-sponsored university work. um, It's just you have to pay it back, but it's government-promised loan. Um, We can talk about whether that's good or bad later. but, um, But at the time, when you go from no universities, monasteries, priesthoods, a few schools we talked about schools like alexandria and, and 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 jerusalem which have mostly died away with the rise of islam where islam conquered a lot of that land so now you're having european universities start to pop up in this period that they call the medieval period and so um so they began to li- these 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 scholastic studies formed a large part of the curriculum and. Um, and they'll flood the the, um, and most of the great un- modern European um, universities come from that that period. Uh, Oxford, Cambridge, um, Harvard. These are uh, the, uh, Oxford and Cambridge. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, come from this time period, and they give they they start out as people wanting to know more education centered around monastic and cathedral schools. And they become universities. Now, in about... There's a man named Martinius Capella in about 425. Now, he he's probably... I knew that was going to happen. He was the first one to develop... Um, really the university system. And it started about, um, about 425, and he adopted this from the Roman system, um, focused on grammar, rhetoric, and logic, adding in geometry, arithmetic, astronomy, and music. Um, and the idea behind us was, was that so clergy the priest could use this information, could could fulfill their their preaching f- uh, function effectively because they were educated. Now, this continues on during the time of Char- Charlemagne. Now I remember we talked about Charlemagne and um, the first orig- uh, Holy Roman Empire which they developed monasteries, schools for learning and this develops into um, learning centers. Um, the University of Paris developed from the cathedral school connected to the, um, the Notre Dame Cathedral. The, um, so then on top of that, on top of the um, the need for education for the priests. you also had a rise in certain great teachers. Whenever you have great teachers start to rise, people want to go hear them. It's no different today, right? We have the benefit of being able to go hear most of these people online. But think about some of the people that, you know, um, well, think about someone, uh, a lot of you guys come from the movement of like the the Billy Graham uh, evangelism period. Um, you, you, people flooded even non-Christians, Christians alike flooded to go see him um, because he was a great teacher and preacher and, and, and people and so with great teachers uh, such as Irenaeus um, you know people began to rise up and say, with great teachers comes the need to go see them and therefore develops schooling around them um, And then on top of that, universities came in as a result of revolution and migration from other schools. Uh, We talked about um, English students who were mistreated at the University of Paris or felt mistreated at the University of Paris. They revolted against conditions and they started Oxford in England in 1167. Those who were uh, in Oxford, there was a revolt in Oxford, and they started Cambridge. Um, in twelve oh nine, we have, so we have like revolutions beginning as people begin to, to start. So this kind of development of universities happens naturally over time as great teachers come and teach, and people want to take those learnings. And then as you develop, as great teachers develop, great teachers or at least that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, that's one of the ways you could tell a bad teacher. They could be great at rhetoric, which means speaking, but if they're not developing people, they're not a good teacher. If none's, no one's coming out of them that is able to teach themselves, they're not a good teacher. They may be a great speaker, but they're not developing anyone else. And so if you have a great teacher He's the the teachers developing other teachers. And those teachers are going to want to speak. You're going to need a platform and have a place to speak. And so you're going to have the the need for somewhere else for them to speak. And it's going to develop into school. So this, this... you, the development of university systems happens naturally as the flow, as people begin to desire. Remember, the, Rome, the the fall of Rome led to a time of upheaval and poverty. And as they start moving out of that, over the generations, people start moving out of that period. They begin to have time where they want to know more and learn more. And so that, you know, that idea of the dark ages, I can't stand that. It was someone's because they weren't happy with the stuff between the Renaissance and the... But they are coming out of this time of depression and they're starting to learn and they're developing and these universities are returning that had collapsed with the fall of the Roman uh, the, 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 fall of the Roman Empire. So you're having this scholastic return. Um, and that's, you know, and, and, um, and so we have the, the term scholicism um, So let's talk about some of their their, their teachings. This is that handout that you have that I passed out for you guys. I took this from um, the views on uh, 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 church history. Um, You can see that information in the app in the notes section. Um, Scholastic, well, the Latin... From Through the Latin and the Greek word "skole," which is actually where we get the word school from, um, it becomes a place of learning. And, um, and, it, uh, fo- and because the church is such a predominant space, as they were becoming the leaders and the rulers and the, the heads and salvation during the European medieval period, it's only natural that it'll become a fo- the focus of many of these school universities will be on religion. But it won't just be on religion. Like I said, rhetoric, philosophy, arithmetic, reading, writing, all these good things are going to be coming out of these time periods. Um, but they're going to be, these scholars are going to be trying, and what we're going to see as the, they, divide, they, they, they develop these schools develop, and we're going to see different types of schools develop that are going to look at the world fundamentally different. Because as they begin to talk, and then anytime you start to talk in the school atmosphere, you're going to have people come up with different philosophies and be introduced with different ways of thinking. And different people from different areas, from different way uh, cultures they grew up in, Uh, different uh, economic situations you're going to come up with different philosophies and so as we talk about some of this I'm going to have to talk about some philosophy I'm going to try to dumb a lot of it down because a lot of it is really complicated Um, but I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible but it is something that uh, we will have to talk about uh, a little bit of that uh, the philosophy is behind some of these because they're what they're going to do is they're going to try to, and we're still in the process of doing, we're always doing this. We say, well, we don't do that. Yes, we do. Even today, your philosophy, how you look at the world affects how you interpret and read the scriptures. That's why so many of us have different, like, oh, this passage means this, but oh, this passage means this. Because we're looking at it from co- fundamentally different places than many times. Um, it, an easy way that we can see it in our, outside of the church is dem, uh, Democrats versus Republicans. You have a fundamental different way of looking at the world. And it's becoming more and more divided as, well, as politicians make it so. But... Um, and that's neither here nor there. But but we're having very fundamentally different ways of looking at the world. And so we're going to see philosophy start to insert. And a lot of what we're going to see is at this time period, people are rediscovering the work of Aristotle. Remember, the Greco-Roman world failed. They knew about Aristotle then. But we had that fall, that collapse of the Roman Empire. We had this long period where there wasn't you know, a philosophical mindset. It was a, let's get work done and feed each ourselves. Let's reestablish our baking system. Let's, you know, get ourselves out of poverty system. Um, let's not die system. <laughs> and so as people began to talk, they began to rediscover Aristotle. Um, before uh, the 5th century, um, and really... And it wasn't translated, when Aristotle was translated into Latin in 1215, um, or so, it became from Arab, era, Jewish and Arama, Arabic sources, um, it began to really influence the world around them. So if you have not read your Aristotle in a long time, you should revisit Aristotle. I'm not going to go through his teachings here, but because um, it's not church history, but Aristotle so important to the theology and the, the way of thinking that will come out of this time period. Um, as I say that, does, who is Aristotle? Do you guys know who, who? Who could tell me who Aristotle is? I don't want to... He was a philosopher. Where is he from? Greece, specifically Athens. His mentor was... Starts with a P. Plato. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, anyway, so as we begin, they're very much going to be, and so we're going to see this this introduction of him back into the world through the Arabic, (laughs) interesting enough, through the Muslim sources, the the Arabic sources are going to be bringing, as we... The Crusades happen, and we're incoming and interact with the scholars of the Crusades, and, and there's trade happening and not happening and happening and not happening, and we conquer and not conquer, and, you know, all that stuff going on. We talked about the Crusades. Aristotle's going to be reintroduced back into the, the world of theology. And, um, and so we're going to have this kind of um, revolution in, in, in thought. Um, I think Tom, it's it said that Thomas Aquinas is probably the the greatest scholar of all. His teacher Albert Magnus, um, Dominicans. We talked about the Franciscans and the Dominicans last week. Um, so, and these 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 things were. Um, And one of the big things that they began to debate, and that's what we're having here, is the idea of, on this piece of paper, is, 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 is faith from revelation or by re- or reason? Which comes first? Is faith through reason or just by revelation? Is there reason, is there is there space for faith for reason in our faith? Is this still a topic that's debated hotly in churches today? Um, was faith reasonable at all? Now, I'm going to go start out right from the bat as I put this in with my own biases, because we talked about our own biases, and I'm I'm going to own up to mine. I'm very much, I have a reason for my faith, and if I believe you can look at the evidences presented, and you can reason, by through reason, come to a conclusion of faith, I'm very much a the reason and faith do go together. Um, I very much am a... Uh, a, a scholar and an academic and, uh, and uh, I can argue in, in that, that, that standpoint and so I'm going to go ahead and put that out there because it will probably come out as we talk about these things because I can't divorce who I am as we talk about things but I'm going to try to stay neutral in the matter but um, but it probably will come out because that's just who I am um you know, I think anyone who, who who does things like reads Lee Childs or uh, not Lee Childs, uh, um, Lee Strobel, and uh, you know Jay Warner Wallace and and uh, all these apologetics that are you know talking about how we reason our faith, you know, people that um, I think they're fantastic. But but anyways, um, as they were going through this, they began to look at logic very much in the way of Aristotle and, um, and, and look at um, logic deductive, we're actually going to see some things that are going to lead um, Actually, I'm going to say that in a minute. Almost jumped the gun there. Um... Yeah, so, um, yeah, so schools of of scholastic, let's get to this piece of paper. Um, the ultimate idea, reality and faith, faith and reason, how do they go together? Now, the first school that develops is realism. Um, The revelation of faith and reason is, I believe, in order that I may know. Um, Socrates and, and Aristotle believe that universals such as church and man have existence. Um, Uh, for example, he believed there are universals such as truth and beauty and good that exist apart from human acts of truth and and beauty and goodness. He says there's a universal idea behind them. And um, and, and as this introduced this idea, Plato... Um, a- a- people such as Augustine and, and now Anselm were thinkers who... Um, I guess Anselm in 1033 through 1109, born in northern Italy, is really one of the people that really began to begin, who, who began to fall under this realism idea. Um, Anselm's idea of the relationship of reason to faith was summed up in the statement, I believe in order that I may know, faith must be primary and must be the foundation for all knowledge. That's how he believed. Faith must be the primary for all knowledge. Uh, This was essentially the position that Augustine held some centuries before. Um, And part of this is he, you know, he 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 develops the idea that um um like atonement uh, and he wrote when man be when god became man he wrote that um that that he obey uh owed absolute obedience to god and um that obedience had been withheld by nature of man since sin of Adam and that man was in debt to God who demanded payment of debt or satisfaction of punishment and that the God of man Christ by his death on the cross paid that debt and that man could not pay and thus man was free from his obligation uh, so it really became um, a view that that um, that God was going to punish mankind and that we owe a debt to God. Okay, There's another viewpoint that Thomas Aquinas starts that the debt was owed to Satan because Satan was going to owe mankind. He was taking it away from Satan. And it's, it seems like a, a minor thing in Christian theology. I don't know if we really want to talk about it right now because that's church history. It's, but the idea is... Who does the debt belong to? Is it are you paying the debt to God or the debt to satan and it's a argument that uh, um, that they have argued about in in church theology in in, in years past and, uh, you guys can go ahead and read on that later and then debate on that issue, but it's <laughs> um, and that uh that idea of who the debt belongs to. Um, but he believed that the debt was belonged to God. He owed God because God, Christ saved him from the debt he owed to God. Okay, that's Absalom. Um, the moderate or realism view... Um, Held a new more moderate view of the nature of reality. He believed that universals exist in particular things as common to their nature. For example, humanity exists in individual people. And so he didn't really focus on things like beauty or goodness or things like that that are outside of it. Um Aquinas and Abelard are the two major ones in that time period. Um, Abelard believed that, um, that reality existed first in the mind of God, and then here and now in individuals rather than above and beyond this life and finally in man's mind. So he believed that it was first God, made up in God's mind, and then it worked its way to the man, mind of Christ, uh, man's mind. Um, his, his major thing, the major thing of moderate realism is, I know in order that I may believe. Because I know, therefore I believe. See the difference there between the realism and the believers? I believe, therefore I know, versus I know, therefore I believe. Um, and that that does make a big difference um, in how things, how, how you in, you introduce your your way of thinking. Um, some of you in this room, you have faith, and therefore you work every bit of things you know based on your faith. And if it goes up against what you think you know in your faith, then you will say that does that's not true, that can't exist. That this is m- very well seen in things like. Um evolution. There are Christians out there that say, no, the Bible says we were created in six days, therefore evolutions cannot exist. Okay? Faith dictates knowledge. Then there are Christians that say, Well, my faith says that God created us, and this is how He it was conceptualized in the ancient reader. But that doesn't mean it wasn't this, because this is a story, this is a, 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 not a, 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 a dialogue with Darwin, this is a dialogue with, and so therefore both can exist at the same time, because I know the evidence is there just because, and it, my faith exists because I know. And so you see a big difference in the way people look at the world because of how they, they, they face this question. And, um, and, and some of you are sitting there thinking, well, the other side, whichever side you're on, is wrong and I don't like them. And, and, and we, we build up these kind of intolerances for other people. It's been there. It was back there then, too you're wrong, I can't stand it if for someone else who thinks differently than me. Um, but the reality is it's a very fundamental different way and people think, it's a different philosophy. And it goes back to the very way we interpret the world and see the world. And so it, it begins to answer, and uh, um, before we go too far, uh, uh, we, uh, let's go back to evolution for just one second. Nowhere in the Bible does it says your view on evolution or dictate whether you're a Christian or not. I just want to throw that out there. Uh, we use that as our litmus paper too often. And, and, and what's it say? It takes say whether you're a Christian or not? You believe and confess in Jesus Christ. So your belief on that is, is separate but um, so let's just throw that out there before we go too far down that rabbit hole, um, hating the other side of whichever side you're on.: um, If you're a realist, world: You're absolutely true. But we can look at the evidences. If you're a modernist, you would say, I can look at the evidences and say, therefore, I come to faith because I can look at the evidences. And then my my faith will help me understand some things that I can't understand, like how how God became faith in flesh because my faith fills in those gaps, but it's not necessarily the, the sole basis of it. It's a total different way of looking at the world. And so, yes, they will fight amongst each other. And we still have those fights today. And some of you are thinking, "Mm, I just don't agree with you. Because you're seeing the world from a different point of view. You're seeing it from just like they did then. I don't remember that conversation, but I'm sure I had it. Right, that is kind of the same thing, talking about miracles and faith and how that, that works together I uh, yeah, I don't remember that conversation but I'm glad it meant something to you uh, <laughs> I apologize for not remembering that conversation, I have to apologize a lot for not remembering conversations you can ask her <laughs> uh, but um, yeah where was I? Um, Thomas Aquinas. Um, Thomas Aquinas believed that um, believed in the realm of natural philosophy and um, and and it, which is compared to modern science, um, but through reason and logic. He believed that you could gain truths to those of God's existence and providence and immortality. And, um, and, and if you're interested in, in more about real modernism and, and, and realism as well, um, Thomas Aquinas has a, a Summa Theologia which is a, a, a beautiful, um, systematic theology, <laughs> and it was, uh, a wonderful read, um, and, uh, um, and it was used, um, to train, uh, missionaries that were going to the Muslims. I mean, it's, a. It's uh, it consists of 3,000 articles, over 600 questions, and three major sections. So it's a it's a work. If you're interested in this time period and what the universities were teaching, Summa Theologia by Thomas Aquinas is like the work um, to 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 look into. Um, I enjoy it quite greatly. I don't agree with everything that he says. but very wonderful work. Um, like he shares that uh, the belief in the hierarchy of man and heaven, like heaven, hell, like with the layers of of heaven, and the layers of hell, um, which if you've never read Dante's and, uh, Divine Comedy, like I said, you guys should read. Maybe our next class, we'll just forget the Bible or we'll just read divine comedy because it influences us so much. <laughs> our uh, our A lot of our theology comes from divine comedy um, on heaven and hell. Way too much. Um, which I don't even think it's about that. I really think it, but it, it's mirrored in there. Anyways. But um, he emphasized... Uh, Sacraments, of penis. um He, uh, Thomas Aquinas, is actually one of the people that started the idea of the indulgences. Now, remember what I said about indulgences. What was an indulgence? That's right. You give. It, it gives you, creates you one free. Yeah, get out jail free card uh, <laughs> um, you either gave or penance or fought in a crusade or, or, you know, did this act of service, whatever it was that you needed. You can get this idea of penance, uh, from purgatory. And, uh, so that's, um, so that was part of what, uh, uh, a lot of today's world, um, realism is more popular in the evangelical world um which i don't even like the word evangelical anymore evangelical has become a political word um you don't have to be a christian to be evangelical anymore you could be a, a buddhist and an evangelical because you agree with it politically um so let's say more of a reformed theologian you believe in like evangelizing and Uh, More Protestant, I will say Protestant, I don't think that's a great term for it either, but uh, evangelical might be the only way we have, but uh, realism is more popular than that one, and modern realism is actually more popular in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, Personally, I think both of them have some major flaws, but uh, uh, nominalism is the third school of thought that came out at this time period um. And this one I believe is separate from I know. This one creates two separate separation and this will lead to some things like separation of church and state. I believe and I know can be separate. general truths or ideas have no objective existence outside of the mind rather they are subjected to the common ideas universals are only a class name justice is simply a an idea that man derives from justice in action Um, this actually comes a lot out of the criticism of thomas aquinas from by the franciscans Uh, william uh, of ockham in 1280 to 1349 developed the idea behind it he insisted that that theological dogmas were not rationally demonstrable they must be accepted only on the theology of the bible you believe in the bible anything else and, and this is where a, a lot of people uh, in, in in there's no need for for reason you just believe there's no need for uh, uh, scientific thought or, or discovery you just believe and um, anyways now as we're talking about William Ockham there's another one that follows uh, in the same tradition Roger Bacon um, now he has his faith and it's separate from his studies because he believe, we just believe. And then we have any scientific studies he wants to have. Those are just separate. And, um, but he develops um, his time into scientific experiments. And he lays the foundation for which Francis Bacon, no relation, that we can tell anyways, uh, will, will develop into the... Um, Scientific, the modern scientific method, which is kind of cool. So, anyway, so these are the three different ways of thinking that were coming out of the church at this time period. And we're going to see a lot of theology come out of this time. Some of it's still around today, some of it's not. We'll see some, a lot of changes happen. In the, after the Reformation in philosophy, uh, of course, we're also going to have the Age of Industry and the Renaissance and the um, uh, the, the rest of the the, the postmodernist period and uh, other philosophers such as David Hume and introducing and and syncretism with other religions because of uh, the churches. So we're going to see a lot of changes in things. Um, This, there's, becomes out of this time period though there are some important things that come out of it such as the idea that you might be able to separate church and state remember at this point they were looking for that universal and so the idea that you might be able to separate it starts popping up out of these universities uh, which is one of the things that the United States is based off of right? Separation from church and state um, and how you define that is another debate. But um, but the idea that it might be separate in your own personal life or in the nation is actually something that starts coming up out of this, these, these debates. Um, there becomes a more interest in individuals and not just the institutions during this time period, uh, which is important for the development of like you're responsible for your salvation and you answer you know uh, you need it not just you're born into a group therefore you are um, that'll start to come out in these plays uh, of course is one of the majors you know Summa theologia is just one of those things that you know one of those things that come out of this time period that's fantastic Um, yeah uh, students in the medieval university system could believe, begin their their studies at the university as early as 14 um, but most of them usually waited till 16 or 18 before they entered the university Interesting enough, the idea of a youth or an adolescent, really new idea, the idea that you weren't just a man or after you became a boy, the idea, like we say, well, you're a youth at what, 12, and for some reason you guys keep pushing back the, the date of when it become a man, you know, it used to be 18, and then, because we don't have any ceremony. I really don't like the way our society has, That's another pet peeve of mine. We need ceremonies that say this is when you become a man or this is when you become a woman. Like the Jewish have the Bart mitzvah and the bat mitzvah. We don't have any of those in our modern society. We don't have, so people don't know when they become a man. They don't act like men because or women because they don't know when they become one. And we keep moving the dates. Is it when you can drink? Is it when you can vote? Is it Because you, know, you can kill someone, go off to war and kill someone, but you still can't drink. Um, is it when you have a kids in a house i mean you know, is it when you turn 40 i mean i mean how long does this i mean sorry pet peeve of mine um we don't have anything that lets people know that hey now you're a man now you're a woman when you can drive at 16 vote at 18 drink at 21 shoot someone at 18. Um, you know, you can fly a multi-million airplane before you can drive a before you can take a drink in this country. <laughs> uh, and yet, for most people in modern society, they're flying these modern airplanes, and they're still not treated like adults. Because you got to have what a house and a kids, which. Most people cannot afford a house anymore and ki- waiting to have kids until they're much older. Like 26 is the average age of having children now. Um, just because financial. Um, y'all, boomers, need to stop hoarding all the cash. <laughs> stop having all this uh, inflation affecting making laws to affect everyone but you. But uh, yeah, so they could, they could begin as early as uh, 14 in the university system. And they would begin cler- examination of clergymen uh, and, and begin to study rhetoric and, um, and how to speak, and how to learn, and how to talk, and, and philosophy. And, and it became the modern uh, society. Um, almost out of time. Medieval life. Um, You know what? Let's go ahead and watch that video. We're almost out of time. I think we have time for one of the two videos I was going to watch. Uh, Let's go ahead and watch this video. It's about eight minutes long.
1: During the middle ages, the majority of people lived in rural villages rather than urban cities or large towns. But what was everyday life like in a medieval village? The truth is, like many periods in history, medieval life differed from village to village, and from person to person. Life in a medieval village depended on someone's class and role in society. Generally speaking, though, the medieval village was the domain of the peasant. Peasants were the lowest class of society, but they actually made up the majority of the entire population for this majority, the village was the center of their universe. They were born, lived, worked, attended church, were married, had children, and died all within the same area. Today we might imagine a medieval village as a line, square, or several little rows of houses with a tavern and a church. But the medieval village actually took on many forms. It could be several houses clustered together. But a village could also be several scattered hamlets and farmsteads, far apart but under the control of a lord. Most villages would have been houses concentrated around a lord's manor, that is, an administrative device by which a lord charged rents and taxes from peasants. By far the most common villager was the serf. Serfs were the lowest class of peasants and owed fealty to the lord of the manor. Though they were legally free, therefore being different from slaves, they were nevertheless legally bound to the land where they lived and worked, and they were not allowed to move away. The lord of the manor would barely, if ever, be in the village. Instead, he would be away fighting in wars or performing acts of royal service. Manners would be surrounded by huge fields, usually three of up to 100 acres each, which would make up the land for the village. In exchange for living on the land, serfs were expected to pay rent and be responsible for working the land. In northwestern Europe, much of the work revolved around farming cereal crops such as wheat, barley, or rye. Fields surrounding the manor would be worked in rotation, and each would be divided into strips to be worked by individual peasant families. Village fields that weren't fit for growing crops would be used for grazing animals, such as sheep for wool. Beyond the fields would often be woodland, which gave fuel and building materials, or where wild animals could be hunted for food, but only for a privileged few. Resources cultivated in the countryside villages would feed and provide for the village residents, but would also be transported to those living in nearby towns and cities. For the village surf, daily life was difficult, backbreaking, and a constant struggle for survival. From starvation to the plague, it seemed as though the threat of death was always on the horizon. The average village house might have had a low stone wall and a thatched roof, and would have been built mostly out of timber and wattle and daub, a lattice of wooden strips clung together with a mix of wet soil, clay, or animal dung. The majority of medieval villagers would wake at sunrise in order to make the most of the working day. They would work extremely hard from dawn to dusk, with meager meals of bread and pottage, a thick soup made from porridge, peas, and beans. Most villages kept communal cows, so milk, butter, and cheese would also make the menu, with meat being an extremely rare treat until the 15th century. Ale was part of the payment that the peasants received for working the lands of the manor. The peasants received portions of everything produced on the land, although more expensive items were given in smaller quantities. Villagers were highly religious due to widespread Catholicism at the time. They would go to church daily, if not multiple times a day. However, unlike the nobility or richer folk living in cities and towns, village peasants weren't expected to do more than the bare minimum when it came to their daily prayers. It was thought that if you performed your duties by working hard, plowing the fields, and providing for the realm, then you would be rewarded in the afterlife. Daily life in a medieval village would also change depending on the time of year. The necessary work for villagers depended on the month, whether that be harvesting wheat in July or slaughtering farm animals for food in November. Medieval time was also heavily governed by the church, with every month bringing New Saints Day and the hours of the day being tracked by the church bell. While village life was extremely hard work, the sheer amount of religious feast days meant that there was always cause for rest and celebration. However, not all those living in the village would spend their days as serfs working the land. Some would be a higher class of peasant. In the lord's absence, the village manor would be run by a steward, the highest-ranking village official. Each village would also have a bailiff, a man appointed to supervise over the agricultural work done by serfs. Understandably, they were not very popular amongst the villagers. There would also be trade workers such as bakers, millers, blacksmiths. Each village would also have its own priest. To be the village priest was to be in a position of power and respect, as they were considered to be absolutely necessary for the salvation of everyone's souls. The medieval village was remarkably self-sufficient, with an immense sense of community. Villagers would produce everything they needed themselves, in contrast to those in urban areas, which in the 12th century were starting to grow and relied on resources sent from villages. Villagers would make their own clothes from leather, linen, or wool. They would grow their own food using farm tools made by the village blacksmith. They could grind grain for flour at the village mill, and there would be communal bakers where villagers could bring their loaves to be baked. Villagers were also practically self-governing. In medieval England, a law system called Frank Pledge was put in place, which meant that all villagers were equally responsible for the behavior of their peers and neighbors. Between 1346 and 1353, the bubonic plague, known as the Black Death, claimed 30 to 60% of Europe's population. In the wake of the plague, so many peasants had died that there were fewer villagers to work on the land. Peasants therefore realized they were a valuable commodity, playing an important role in providing for the realm. They were able to demand higher wages, better working conditions, and lower taxes, These demands led to revolts and uprisings, and eventually led to many peasants rising into higher roles within society. The lower population also meant that fewer crops were needed, driving the price of grain down. Villages that had initially thrived through the growing of grain in large, open fields fell into disrepair, and over time, many were deserted until the 16th century in all after the devastation of the plague and the changes in social structure that followed. Medieval village life was never quite the same.
0: Thank you. Uh, so village life, um, often uh, very different from what we think of today. Um, urban centers would not be, were, were developing, but not a, a big thing at the time. Um, one of the most important things we can say for worship in this uh, during this time period, we've already talked about some of the, the hymns that came out of this period, so I'm not going to really talk about that. But one of the things that was really important for this time period would be Gothic architecture. Uh, you know, when you guys think of churches like the big grand one with all the stained glass and the pointed and the Notre Dame, and that's the Gothic architecture. And it comes out of this time period as they move from more of a Roman based architecture that can only go so high and have very little lighting and s- to a very grand, lots of buttresses, lots of lighting developed to let light in, lots of artwork um, as, as, as that, uh, that time period comes in. And so we'll see during this time period in worship, a development of a lot more of, um, of artwork, Artwork will become more popular in the churches. As you have windows, you can see inside the church, um, not just lamps. So you'll see more artwork starting to come up, and you'll have uh, what will become eventually like the, the leaders, in like you know, Michelangelo's 16th chapter, ch- chapel on the, on the, the ceiling. Um, you know, these, these, these grand works to show off the, the as, as, as a worship to God and and there'll be different arguments during the time periods of whether this is appropriate or not uh, we can still have those arguments in churches today whether or not how much adornment is is, is appropriate um, but you're going to see that during time period so um, so we're going to see a, a lot of that we're going to see the sacraments develop and and uh, um, you know baptism uh, instead of just a symbol at this time was mostly to literally wash away the original sin Uh, so baptism was necessary if you were not baptized thus the idea of child baptism develops during this time period Uh, because if it's necessary to wash away the original sin then you have to have it therefore children who are dying early have to be baptized. And so we'll see that kind of idea coming about, um, you know, what do you believe baptism does is a big question. Um, I say every week, but I think it does. So, uh, (laughs) we're not going to go there, but, uh, but at this time period, largely it, it was to wash away the, the original sin. um, anyways we're out of time uh do we have any questions before we we quit all right uh if you're interested in worship during this time period i recommend looking into the art art history of the time period because it's largely catholic in origin and it is so much about the uh how worship was done at this time period um very much is a beautiful artwork during this time period. Uh, 1305 to 1517, uh, very beautiful. 1517 will begin the Protestant Reformation, so we're going to see a big change there. Um, so, not next week. Next week we're not meeting. We're going to be moving the sound system. this week. Uh, the week after, we're going to start beginning talking about the medieval sunset. We'll call it the sunset. The medieval sunset and the sunrise and what will become the modern period so we're really going to be focusing in on on that time period right before the uh protestant reformation which often gets overlooked because we're we're on that grist of eh, medieval period let's go to the protestant Reformation because we are a protestant church uh, a, re- a reformed church we'll say um but i th- don't think we can uh we can we can pass it by we will because uh, we do need to talk about uh, some some things that happen in between that as we end one and begin the next. So uh, so we'll begin that process. I think I'll probably have two weeks on that time period. I think so. Um, yeah. So uh, anyone want to close this out in prayer? All right, Rudy. Thank you. Thank you, Rudy.